I'm going to start Matthew 27 this morning, the uh, record of the trial and crucifixion of the Lord. And so here, as maybe in no other chapter, we need to ask for, for his blessing. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, and <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we ask for your insight as we come to think about your death, and as we come to think about the trial and the huge range of suffering and experience that you went through, and we pray that you'll forgive us if we get anything wrong, if our attempts to reconstruct the situation are somehow wrong, but we pray for your guidance, and especially that we might respond, and that your death may not be in vain for us. Please then, bless our thinking and be in our hearts as we resolve to respond. For your sake. Amen. <clears throat> so, when you look at the Gospel records, you find that they all give, in terms of number of verses within the record, they all give a, a huge emphasis to the death of Jesus. The Gospels are not therefore biographies, which usually start talking a lot about the birth and background of a person, and then they, their sort of drive to maturity and, and so forth. In John's Gospel particularly, about two-thirds of the Gospel is talking about the last week of the Lord's life. And if you analyze the Gospels in terms of number of verses, you will see that they, without doubt, are focusing hugely upon the, the death of Jesus. If you look in my, in my notes, you'll see some little graphs of this that rather bring it out visually. The point is that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up uh, in front of us as the ultimate act of God, and there is far more information about those hours, the, his last 24 hours, than there is about absolutely anything, any other incident by far in biblical history. So verse 1, when the morning was come. Now this means that they had been trying a man through the night, and now the morning has come, and they, the chief priests and elders take counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now, trying a man all through the night, I mean, this is hardly the way of justice, is it? The whole legal process throughout this whole thing, the, the three trials of Jesus, uh, are all absolutely immoral. They are an appearance at a very careful, uh, legalistic uh, judicial kind of process when actually there was nothing of the sort. And justice, of course, was, was not done. The crime of the century, the, the, the crime of the cosmos, the, the worst possible thing that was done in infinite time and infinite space, in fact, that is the death of Jesus, the killing of Jesus, this was done by men who claimed to be religious, by men who were, as we would say, members of the ecclesia, believers, under the, the guise of obedience to God. And this is a, an absolutely terrible thing, but the worst possible sin or crime of, of history, of the whole cosmos, of the whole of existence, was done by men under the guise of obedience to God. We're told here in verse 1 that the elders and the priests took counsel together to put him to death. And time and again in these records, you read about them taking counsel. They take counsel about everything to do with the killing of Jesus and dealing with Judas. You keep on reading this little term. They took counsel together. And we must give John 12.42 its full weight, which says that there were many of the elders who believed in him, but they feared the Pharisees and would not confess him. Many of the elders believed in him. 
Now, we know, of course, about Joseph and Nicodemus. But my point is that, again, the crime of the cosmos, the crime of all history, was committed by people who actually, many of whom in their heart of hearts did not want to do it. That's, at first blush, incredible. But looking a little bit at human experience, no, it's not. They did this in council, in council together. This is the problem with human beings, that when we come together, we can start to adopt a position that is far beyond us personally. Uh, and it often happens negatively. In this case, these people did not actually, all of them really want to do this. But when they got together, they whipped themselves up into a position where they were baying for his blood and they took these, these decisions that they took. Now, of course, it works positively that when we come together in Ecclesia, when we come together as the people of God, this is the whole reason why we have church life. Otherwise, we can all just sit at home and have our own faith to ourselves. Thanks very much. The effort that we make to come together as groups of believers is in order to strengthen each other, to take us each beyond the limits of where we each personally uh, stand in terms of our spiritual kind of capability, uh, as it were. Verse 3, Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, and I wondered if the emphasis is upon the word he, when he saw that he was the condemned one. Because the money that they paid to Judas, I, I wondered, and this is a speculation, I wondered if a part of the deal was not simply that he went into Gethsemane and said, yeah, this is the one, because I think they knew who Jesus was. I wondered if part of the deal was that he would be the star witness at the trials. And the trials will go wrong, don't they? They can't get a conviction, even within their own sort of legalistic system. They, they can't get a conviction. Um, they can't get witnesses. And I wonder if Judas kind of failed them. And yet he realizes that actually Jesus was not standing there in the dark. He was, as it were, literally. But he was, in fact, by a huge twist of paradox, he was the judge. He was judging them by his own righteousness. And they, as they stood and condemned him, were condemned. Because this is why Jesus says, when you condemn other people, you stand condemned by them. This is the great thing. that, uh, And it came to its ultimate moment in the, in the condemnation of Jesus. That as they condemned him, he, without saying a word, condemned them. And Judas realized that it actually it was him in the dark and he was condemned. And then he repents. Well, this is not the word that is used in a moral sense for repentance and transformation. This word, the Greek word that's translated here about Judas repenting, it literally means to care again or to care afterwards. And so he realized that he was going to be condemned. And it's as if he's trying to make the most of a bad situation. He's faced with, as he sees it, I think, two evils, and he takes the lesser evil, which as he sees it, it is to commit suicide. So this was not repentance. Yeah, sure, it was regret. It was a thinking of, oh, hang, what have I done? Um, but I, I still think it was basically caring for himself. As I say, the, the Greek word seems to mean to care again, to care afterwards. And now he, he realizes he's made a huge mess and the, the lesser of two evils, as he sees it, is to commit suicide. 
So that is true repentance, the sort of repentance that Peter went through because him and Judas were in parallel situations that night, that moment, and that is false repentance, where we just feel a gut feeling of, oh, hang, what have I done? Uh, how can I get out of the consequences? What are they, what's the, the lesson of, of the various evils on our face me? Just like there's true peace and there's a false peace. There's true love and there's, as we know, a false love. There is prayer from the heart and there's prayer that's just mouthing words. There's faith which is unfeigned, which is sincere. And there's faith which is simply hoping for the best. So with all true spirituality, there is, as it were, a, a false spirituality that kind of uh, apes it and, and copies it. And that's very true with repentance. So he brings again the 30 pieces of silver. And that's the same word when Jesus says to Peter, put up your sword, bring again your sword into its sheath that he does. So again, you just see in that little thing there, one of a whole number of connections between Peter and Judas. They both betrayed their Lord. And yet, Peter can believe in grace. He goes to the cross, as I said in the last study, First uh, Peter 5.1, he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, realizing what he had done. He went to the cross, he believes, he repents, and then he's reinstated in, in John 21. Whereas, Peter just, uh, Judas just can't believe in God's grace enough, and he goes and jacks himself in. Now he brings again the 30 pieces of silver, and I think that's significant because he did it, I suggest, largely for financial motives. I mean, he went to them and said, what will you give me, and I will betray him? You give me, what's, what's he worth? Let's make a deal. And I think the way that he throws down the pieces of silver in the temple, I think, is an evidence of how much he, as it were, hated those coins. <clears throat> because he realized that, really, he'd done it for money. Now, again, at first blush, you think, well, that, that can't be possible. Would a man do that for money? All that, just for money? Especially just 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't a huge sum. It could only buy a potter's field. And of course, the answer to that, <coughs> the, the more you think about it, the answer to that is yes. Because we see all around us men and women who give up their faith in Jesus for the sake of money. They take second jobs, third jobs, they spend their lives, hearts, evenings trying to educate themselves to get more and more money, and then they're thinking how to spend it, how to invest it, and all the worries that go with that. And their spiritual life goes down, down the tube. And they betray, effectively, the Son of God for their 30 pieces of silver. So, yes, I can believe that. Because I see people giving up their faith in Christ for money, basically. <clears throat> I see it in the Western world amongst rich people. I see it amongst poor people. It doesn't matter where you stand on the, uh, on, on the kind of uh, spectrum, economically. <clears throat> you can still do this. And people still do it. And so it's not surprising to me that Judas could do it for money. And he says, I have sinned. He brings the money to them saying, I have sinned. <clears throat> now, these are, the <clears throat> these are the very words of the prodigal son, of Job, of Micah, and David. People who really did repent. People who really did say, I have sinned. But, in but instead of doing what they all did and go back to the father... He goes and kills himself. 
Now, this phrase, <clears throat> I have sinned, is also found on the lips of Pharaoh, Balaam, Achan, and several times Saul says this. Oh, David, I have sinned. The point is, <clears throat> that recognition of sin is not enough of itself. Because all those men, Pharaoh, Balaam, Saul, uh, Achan, they all use the same words, the same phrase. Just as righteous men like Job, Micah, David, <clears throat> the, the prodigal, they, they will use the same language. But it's obviously got different meaning to each of them. So on a surface level, on a surface level, uh, Judas appears to repent. I mean, he gives the money back. He recognizes he's done wrong. He confesses his sin publicly. He uh, uh, tries to make amends with the money as far as he can. And he says the words, I have sinned. But it's still not enough. And I think it just shows that repentance is a matter of the heart. And a matter, in the end, of trust and faith in God's grace. And we should never get in the business of judging human repentance. <clears throat> Yet so many churches do, don't they? You can come back, if you repent of your whatever, divorce and remarriage or whatever you, you did wrong... Um, and, and we will stand in judgment as to whether your repentance is sincere. And you hear it positively. You say, oh, yeah, you know, he came back, but you know, he was, he's so repentant. Lovely guy. Very repentant. He messed up, but he's so repentant. Who, who are you? You don't know that guy's heart. Judas and, <coughs> <coughs> Judas and Peter did the same thing. But Judas... <laughs> didn't really repent. He did all this stuff on the surface. Whereas Peter really came to the cross. You don't know. And likewise, you don't know when someone uh, who you think has not repented, you don't know what's going on in human hearts. And, of course, more personally, we should recognize that when we are smitten in conscience because of sin and failure, and we should be, and if we are not be, being smitten like that, there's something seriously wrong, with us, uh, if we are smitten like that, what do you do with it? Because you've got to be careful that you don't think, well, yes, I, I said that I'm a sinner. Of course, we're all sinners. Yes, I have sinned, I have done wrong. Yeah, that's not enough, because Judas says that, all these guys, Achan and, and Saul and so forth, Balaam, they will say that. Uh, but, uh, I don't know, even publicly. But that is not the same as repentance in real spiritual terms. He says, I have betrayed the innocent blood. Well, he really did understand quite a bit, didn't he? That the blood of Jesus was the basis of our salvation and that that uh, blood, that life, was innocent, was, was sinless. So again, you can believe all the theory. But it just shows that appreciating God's grace is the, is the crucial issue. It's that which is not a cosmetic issue. It's not as if the main thing is to get all this doctrine, all this theology correct, and, oh yeah, some guy said something about grace, yeah, well, oh yeah, that's a nice idea. No, this is fundamental, this is crucial, believing in his grace, and that it is enough even for you, as the person who is hopelessly indebted in terms of the parable, uh, who has really messed up, that it's enough for you and even me. This is what's crucial. This is actually what faith in Jesus Christ is all about. And Judas didn't have that. Well, he, verse 5, 
he says this to the priests and then he goes to the temple. Well, I assume that the, the priests and elders were not in the temple. They were where they were trying Jesus. And now he, he takes a journey. They don't want the money back, so he takes the money to the temple. And he casts it down there. Well, this Greek word, ripto, it really means to disperse. And it seems to be a technical term, actually, for depositing money, and possibly also for donating to the poor. So I think that he goes to the temple, to the big trumpets, you know, where Jesus uh, watched the rich men casting all their pennies in, and the, the widow comes and throws in two mites. <clears throat> and he goes there, and he pours all this uh, 30 pieces of silver into the trumpet. That's what I suggest. As a donation for the poor. And of course we know that he had stolen money that was intended for the poor. And it was as if he's trying to put this right. But as I said, he, on, on face value, makes a fair case for repentance that he says, I've sinned. He says it publicly and now he goes and puts some money into into the treasury uh, for the poor, but this is neither here nor there because he doesn't believe in God's grace, and that's why he kills himself. And he departed, and uh, verse five, and that that is very much the picture of condemnation, of being ashamed before him at his coming. One John two twenty eight Greek meaning to to slink away, to slide away, um, to draw back. As we read in Hebrews, we should not do. Um, he draws back. He, like Adam, trying to hide, go away from God's presence. Uh, and he takes the, the, the silver pieces, as I say, and, um, and throws them down there uh, as if he really recognizes that I did this for money and now I don't want the money. And this has been the case with so many lives. They have given up, really, serving God, as they could have done, for the sake of money. At the end of their life, well, what have you got? you got your 30 pieces of silver, you've got your house in Fairview, or whatever, you know, Bellevue, or whatever. Yeah, and it was 30 pieces of silver, and you, your days are up, and you've got to leave this world, and you've got to go to the dust of death. And what have you got? Your 30 pieces of silver, that's all you got, to show for it. And this is the lesson, is it not, of of Judas. Now, you know, if riches come to you, uh, as we read in the Proverbs, if riches come to you, well, well then use them. The, the point is, don't seek for them. Don't say, what will you give me? Oh, I shall betray him unto you. Well, they, the Jews then, verse 6, come and take the silver pieces, and I imagine them fishing this money out of the, uh, the trumpets, out of the, the, these big collection boxes, and saying, well, we can't put them here. It's not lawful to put them into the treasury because it's the price of blood. Well, where did those 30 pieces of silver come from? I'm pretty sure they filched them out of the same collection box themselves to start with. So the whole thing is, is so, so ridiculous. But they say it's not lawful. It's not lawful to, to put them, ballo, to throw, to, to have thrown them here, and Judas threw them in there. Uh, it's not lawful to do that. Well, where in the law of Moses does it say it's not lawful? All you've got is Deuteronomy 25.18 that says, do not bring the hire of a prostitute or a male prostitute into the house of God. Now, they have taken that law and sort of exaggerated it and twisted it 
uh, and put hedges around it, and now they're saying, well, it's therefore not lawful, it's not according to the law of God, to bring uh, blood money into the, into the temple treasury. Well, yeah, that's not the case. There was no law that said that. They had taken one law, you shall bring the hire of a prostitute into the, into the temple, and they had taken that and said, oh, well, that means logically, it logically follows that. You can't have blood money, and therefore, okay, let's say that that's a law. This is how the legalistic mind works. Once you've got one law, it tends to spawn uh, more laws. So you notice that they're keen to obey the, even the implications of a, a rather obscure Old Testament verse about don't bring the hire of a prostitute into the house of God, at the same time as, as crucifying Jesus. And what you see there is, is a classic picture of humanity, of, of our, our split nature between, on one hand, genuinely wanting to follow God and, and trying to be squeaky clean, and on the other hand, quite capable of doing the most disgraceful things. And I'm sure we've all been disappointed at times of ourselves and our own behavior that we have all at times found ourselves on a great spiritual high, maybe at a gathering or after a gathering or breaking a bread or something, and then we're capable of doing the most awful things straight afterwards. Now, this is human nature. This is the, the nature of who we are. And this is what we have to struggle with. And you see, really, uh, in the crucifixion records, you see where human nature unrestrained, where it ultimately leads. It comes to its ultimate term in crucifying the Son of God. Again, verse 7, they take counsel again and again, you meet this. They synagogue together. They come together and even though, as I said, they were not all convinced that they were doing the right thing, together they egg each other on to a group position that is far beyond where they are. That's why the Bible keeps saying, watch your company. Watch with whom you walk. Because it leads you to do things that are far beyond what you personally would like to do, but you shall still be responsible for your actions. They bought with them the potter's field, but, but Acts 1 verse 18 says that Judas obtained the potter's field with the reward of his iniquity. And there's no evidence that he bought that field. And in any case, the money was in his hand right up to the, to the moment of his death, pretty well. Plus, uh, and he put it in the temple treasury, he didn't pay it to the potter, did he? Plus, in any case, this is Passover time, and purchase of property was a slow process in first century Palestine. He did not have time to go and find the potter and buy his field off him. Anyway, he put the money anyway in the temple. So I think what happened is that they fished this money out, and they bought the potter's field, but they bought it in his name. They bought it in his name. So... You, you see again how careful they are to be legalistically obedient. It's pathetic really, isn't it? This duality that there is, particularly in religious people. And that's why we're often shocked at, at, at religious uh, hypocrisy. That somebody can know the Bible, but they do this or they did that. Well, it shouldn't be a shock reading through these records. 
So with that money, they bought a field in Jerusalem to bury Gentiles in. And of course, it's through the, the blood of Christ, as it were, and the price of the Son of God, that Gentiles can be brought into the city of God and have a, a burial place there. And this fulfilled, verse 9, what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, and they gave them for the potter's field. But this is located in Zechariah. Well, I want to suggest that Zechariah here is incorporating material that was written by Jeremiah. It's incorporated into his prophecy. And we'll see a little bit later on uh, why I think that's significant, why this is written like this. And it's because Jeremiah had so much to do with the potter's field. But we'll come to that a bit later. But just here in passing, this is picked on by a lot of surface-level critics who say, oh, yeah, well, so he got his quotation wrong. It's from Zechariah, not Jeremiah. You know, when you come across those kind of petty criticisms, the way of humility is to say, well, I, expect, I accept an inspired Bible. Uh, and, okay, this is a point I can't answer at this time, and I'm still waiting for light on it. And let the critics say, ha, ha, he, he, and go their sad way into unbelief. That's, that's their problem. When you look closer and closer to the text of Scripture, the internal correspondence and internal lack of contradiction, for example, between the four Gospels, is so incredible. It's incredible. It's breathtaking. And it's that which, for me, is such a strong bolster to faith. Uh, in the Bible as definitely a divine book. And these, an obvious mistake like this would simply not be made in a, in a series of records, the Gospel records, which are so carefully congruent with each other. That's just my take on these so-called contradictions. Well, if you go back to Zechariah 11, 12 and 13, especially in the Hebrew text, you read the pronouns a bit different. It's the prophet. It's the prophet who takes the money and throws it to the, the potter. I'll read it. If it seem good to you, give me my wages. But if not, let it alone. And they weighed me as wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the splendid price, sarcasm, at which I am valued by them. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it, uh, into the house of the Lord to the potter. So I think <clears throat> throwing the 30 pieces of silver to the potter was the kind of sarcasm that fits in with the, my splendid price. But my point is that it is, the, it, it is the, the prophet, the rejected prophet, who does this. And 30 pieces of silver in Exodus 21, 32 is the price of a, of a dead slave. I think he's saying, look, I'm a prophet, I'm worth far more than that. If that's my splendid price, he's using sarcasm, then I shall chuck it to the, uh, to the potter. And, of course, how much more the price of the Son of God? The point is that 30 pieces of silver was not that great a price. It was the price of a dead slave. Now, just as Judas threw the coins to the temple and, and so into the temple, so actually... Um, the Jews did that <clears throat> because in the, in the prophecy <clears throat> uh, we're told that that's what they did. And then uh, it's the prophet finally who takes the money and throws it to the potter. 
Now I think later on, when the Jews took the 30 pieces of silver and said, what should we do with it? Uh, let's buy the potter's field with it in Judas's name. If they had stopped to think, and I, we believe from the Acts of the Apostles that many of them did, because they repented and were baptized. If they stopped to think about Zechariah 11, they'd have thought, wait a minute, we've just taken 30 pieces of silver and bought the potter's field. But Zechariah 11 says that the rejected prophet who was sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he does this. So then the penny hopefully would have dropped. I believe it did with some of them. They'd have thought, wow, this rejected prophet is alive and well and is working through me to my condemnation. The price of him that was valued, <clears throat> I think again that this indicates that this was the, the final figure that was reached. There is the suggestion that the 30 pieces of silver was a down payment because it was such a small price. But the price of him that was valued, I think, indicates that no, that's what they thought he was worth. It was pretty, pretty cheap. So they, they buy with it the, uh, the potter's field. Now, the field is the world, Matthew 13 38. And who's the potter? Well, the potter, time and again, in Old Testament thinking, the potter is God. The potter is God. And we noticed that earlier I mentioned that Jeremiah is the one who says that more often than anyone else. Jeremiah 18 verse 2, he goes down to the potter's field. And he goes down because it's in the valley. And the potter's field is in the valley of Hinnom. It's in Gehenna, basically. And he goes down into it, and he, he says there that God is the potter. He sees the potter working, and he basically says, you know what, buddy, you're representing God. God's the potter. That clay is Israel. Now, you can understand, then, why the quotation is made from Zechariah, but it's said that Jeremiah said this, because, yes, they were the words of Jeremiah. Uh, but it's all in this context of Jeremiah having the theme of the potter's field. Now, the point is that the potter's field belongs to God. So, the 30 pieces of silver that were used to, quote, buy this potter's field actually was being thrown back to God because the whole point of all these allusions, putting these scriptures together from Jeremiah and Zechariah, the whole point is that the field is the world and it's God's anyway. The field is God's. The potter's field was God's. He is the potter. So actually, you weren't giving him anything. Everything cycles back to him. So this whole thing of Judas thinking, well, now I'm going to put everything right, I'm going to go and, uh, and put the money into the temple. Well, you know, every piece of silver in the world is God's. Every bit of money is God's. Everything is God's. And so this is the, the bizarre thing that happened, that actually it, it all came back to him. So, verse 12, he was accused of the chief priests, and of course he was falsely accused. And what does the word devil mean? It means a false accuser. So the whole Jewish system has been set up as the, the false accuser of, of Jesus, and that's why it's called Satan. Satan, a number of times, refers not just to abstract sin, but to systems, and particularly to the Jewish system. Well, Pilate is astonished 
uh, the Lord's silence. I think this is the Lord at his supremest, really, in terms of self-control. He was amazed at how self-controlled he was, at how this man was going to die for blatantly false accusations that he could have answered, but he doesn't answer. So Pilate is amazed. Now again, verse 17, yet again, we meet this word, when they were gathered together, Pilate says to them, whom will you that I release unto you? Again and again, I say this, that we are gathered to, when we gather together, that's when we are, are led by the group uh, dynamic to behaviour that is far beyond what we personally would do. Now, verse 18, I think, is crucial to understanding Pilate's behaviour here. For he knew that they had delivered him up out of envy. So I don't think that he's saying, look, here's Barabbas, here's Jesus. Come on, guys, why don't you choose Jesus? Uh, no, he, because he knew they had delivered him up out of envy. He knew they wanted to kill Jesus. My suggestion is that Pilate's conscience was deeply touched by all this, and he realized that Jesus was the King of Israel, and he was the innocent blood. He was, as Pilate later calls him, this just man, and he uses uh, the word for righteousness there. And he's really saying, look, he, this guy is righteous. I don't want his blood on my hands. When he washes his hands and says, I'm innocent, uh, the blood of this man. Uh, the word that he uses for innocent is without penalty. That's what it means, without penalty. He's saying, look, there's going to be a penalty for killing this man. And I don't think he was thinking there's going to be trouble from Caesar. There's going to be trouble from headquarters in Rome. No. So who's going to give a penalty? Where, from where is this penalty, this suffering going to come from? Because of killing Jesus. He knew it's going to come from God. God will require this. And so he thinks that by washing his hands he can get rid of this guilt from himself. And, of course, he, I think, is trying to set the whole thing up so that the Jews choose to, to kill Jesus and he can say, you chose this. So he knew they had delivered him up out of envy. He knew that if he offered them Barabbas or Jesus, they're going to scream for Barabbas. You can misread the record here, I think, as if he's mystified as to, well, why don't you choose Jesus? He knew they would prefer Barabbas. He knew they had delivered him out of envy. Incidentally, envy, you know, jealousy is cruel as the grave. He rightly perceived a lot of things. He perceived that it was jealousy that was behind all this. And that is, in the end, the reason the Lord was killed as he was. Now, whenever we suffer from jealousy, whenever we do, and we all do, some of us more than others, I feel it's been my little cross to carry, but we, we suffer because we're sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. In that moment, when you've got your head in your hands and you're shaking it and you think, yeah, this is just out of envy. Well, in that moment, you are sharing in the cross of Jesus. And if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. So then... I suggest that when he says in 21, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And he says this a number of times. He says it to the chief priests. He says it to the crowd. 
he's saying it because he's playing a psychological game with them. He knows that by giving them the choice, they're going to scream, Barabbas, and kill Jesus. That's what they wanted to do, because he knew they had delivered him up because of envy. Now, his wife, verse 19, also had this kind of conscience. She says, I suffered many things because of him. Now, suffered many things, three Greek words. And that phrase is used at least four times in the Lord's own predictions of his crucifixion. He talks about how it would be a suffering of many things. Matthew 16, 21, other references. So I think this woman had a correct premonition about, about the Lord. Uh, and she's saying that, look here, I'm starting to share in his sufferings that are going to come. Don't, uh, you know, he's right. He, he's a, a just man. Don't you have his blood upon you? And uh, I think that her position was actually Pilate's as well. Now, of course, these miserable critics of the Bible love to say, look, that this is just not true to history because Pilate in history is a terrible man who's abusive, who just walked down the street and saw some kid walking along and said, ah, oh, you think I'll torture you to death? And he was particularly abusive towards uh, uh, the Jews. He had no respect of these people. He is presented in history as an absolutely conscienceless person who had absolutely no conscience. And, of course, you come to Gospel records, and you see this man struggling with a conscience. And he says, verse 23, Why, what evil has he done? Now, I'm saying that he's saying that in order to elicit from the Jews the screaming out that, that okay, his blood be on us and on our children. It's completely our responsibility, Pilate. Don't worry about it. He's trying to elicit that from them by repeatedly offering them the choice between Barabbas and Jesus and by asking them, uh, you know, for, for a reason, uh, for their, their mania against him. Because we all know that when you ask someone who's got an unreasonable position on something, when you ask them for the reason, they just shout them all. They just shout their position just louder in one way or another. And Pilate knew that. We know that. Pilate knew that. And that's why he keeps on asking the same question. Well, what's he done wrong? Kill him. What's he done wrong? Kill him. He's playing a game with them. But he's playing a game with them, I suggest, because he's waited in his conscience with this thing that I don't want his blood on me. And I want you Jewish people to say beyond any question that this is 100% on your head. And when they actually he elicits from them the, 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 the statement that, yeah, his blood be on us. Okay, then I think he like stops the game. And of course, when they start to get really worked up and say, oh, you're Caesar, you're not Caesar's friend, he starts to get worried. He starts to think, oh, wait a minute, like the game went a bit too far. My point is, this whole elaborate situation with Pilate is because he has this terrible conscience and he's trying to put the guilt for the whole thing onto the Jews. So it's their decision and not his. Now, what I think you learn from this is that the cross of Christ and the suffering Jesus uh, elicit conscience. They touch conscience. And they even touch the conscience of Pilate. 
who generally was a conscience-less person. You learn from this that no one actually is without conscience. Hitler, Stalin, the rest of them, they all had conscience. Everybody has conscience somewhere within them. Now, that's a, a, that has a practical meaning. Because the Lord Jesus clearly intended us to remember his death, to remember his suffering, as a basis for our own self-examination. And you see this brought out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, where the, Lord, uh, the Lord's death is to be the basis of our self-examination. There's these old stories from the old, very old missionaries who say that they went to illiterate countries, uh, met savage people, told them the, the, the message uh, of the gospel got nowhere, until they got over to them, Christ crucified. And I don't know to what degree those stories are true, but they might be. I, I can see, yeah, I can sort of see it, that you put Christ crucified in front of a person, as it were, and some, something happens. This touches at some nerve that is wired into every human being. That he there, the Son of God, the Son of Man, our representative, suffering and dying for us. Yeah. And so it is with us. At times we may worry that I'm losing my conscience. I don't feel bad about sin anymore. I, uh, I, 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 I don't seem to, to really have the fire that comes from knowing that I've been forgiven. I just scribble them all as little sins and, yeah, you know, weakness of character and blah, blah. Okay, we all have that. In, in any spiritual life, you're striving for the imitation of Christ. Uh, you will have those moments when you worry about that. Well, let the cross of Christ convict us. This is where personal meditation upon him and his suffering, personal reconstruction in our own mind as far as we can of the nature of his death, his physical sufferings, etc. Trying to enter something of his mental sufferings. Um, this is what will elicit from us the sense of failure, the sense of need for him. And, as I say, Pilate is the parade example. And he, he talks about, as I say, that this just person, this righteous man, this innocent blood, uh, etc. And he says to them at the end, 24, see to it yourselves. And you know, that's the very phrase that the Jews used to Judas in verse 6, where he says, oh, look, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. And the Jews say, what is that to us? You see to that. And now Pilate uses that very phrase to the Jews. You see to that. It's as if he's saying, you are Judas. Uh, and that's why they're both called the devil. Both Jews and Judas uh, are called the devil by Jesus. Uh, the devil put into his heart. The devil there is a Jewish system. Uh, they put into his heart to betray Jesus, etc. Satan desired to have Peter as well. But Peter was strong and didn't give in. So, I think his Pilate's perception here is is pretty 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 sharp. He's saying that you know I just treat you how you treated Judas when he was condemned. Uh, now, I almost wonder I almost wonder whether Pilate, even Pilate, underneath at this point in time, believed or at least he understood very accurately. He talks about. Uh, the blood of this just person 
Well, you know, later on in the records we, in Acts, we do read that the blood of Christ um, was ultimately upon the Jews, not upon the Romans. Uh, and when he talks about this just person, this is you know, Acts 3.14, uh, Peter condemns Israel for, for choosing a murderer and rejecting the just one, and therefore they have blood upon them. So he's sort of quoting Pilate's words almost with, um, with agreement, really. Uh, so I, I wonder, I'm not saying that Pilate would be saved or, or that, you know, who knows, um, or that Pilate continued to be a believer. But I think at this point, I think at this point, he sort of does. And that's why he insists to write over the cross, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Not, he's crucified because he claimed to be the King of the Jews, which is a more natural thing to write. And of course, when he washes his hands, this is, I think, alluding to the, uh, the Jewish rite in, in Deuteronomy, where, again, there was to be a washing of hands to show that you're innocent. So, although Pilate uh, had done many things against the Jews, uh, clearly he, he knew far more, his language indicates that he knew far more than might appear at first blush. And I even think that he believed it. Well, they finally cry out, look, his blood be on us and on our children. And I would like to just conclude by thinking a bit about that. I think it's when they, they say that, that Pilate thinks, yeah, fine, you've taken responsibility by saying that, I wash my hands, I'm off the hook. Whether he finally is off the hook of the Day of Judgment, I don't know. But I'm just saying that, that the cross and the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, touched his conscience deeply. And that's why it is the basis of our own self-examination, of the breaking of bread and in life generally. Now, this, uh, his blood be on our side of our children, this is not the explanation for anti-Semitism, for anti-Jewishness, uh, for Holocaust, etc., etc. That, ah, yeah, Jewish people suffered because their ancestors said his blood be on our side of my children. I, I don't think that God operates like that. Uh, in any case, the idea of us and our children in biblical Hebrew thought uh, is really talking about us and our literal children, the next generation. I don't think that it's saying that, the let's say there was a few hundred people who shouted that, that their literal children for eternity are going to have blood guiltiness and shall therefore suffer. Uh, because of what they shouted, their ancestors shouted so many centuries ago. No. Uh, and this is not the explanation for, for the Holocaust and for Jewish suffering. Uh, there are other views we can talk about afterwards about why uh, there has been the suffering of Jewish people, Holocaust, uh, Shoah, and, and all this kind of thing, but I, I don't think that uh, the answer is because a bunch of people 2,000 years ago shouted, His blood be on us and on our children. God does not punish uh, people anyway for the sins of their fathers. But more positively, when Peter stands up six weeks later after this and addresses the people uh, really just a stone's throw away from where all this is happening, he 
also uses this idea of us and our children. And it's in Acts 2, verse 39, where he says that um, you must repent, be baptized uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children. I think this is a purposeful sort of reversion of them shouting out, may his blood be on us and on our children. Peter's saying there is forgiveness of sin and transformation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, for you and for your children. What you guys shouted out six weeks ago can be reversed. And, of course, these words, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and to your children and to all that are afar off. I think he's saying that all those that are afar off in time and space, distance, uh, which is us, we who in this age have believed, that we are in that sense in the position of those people. Now, they were there with their unspoken fears that, you know, six weeks ago we were yelling his blood be on us and on our children. And Peter's addressing their unarticulated fears, just as the gospel does that to each of us. Uh, and he's saying, look, really and truly, whatever you've done, whatever, even if it was the crucifixion of Jesus, and you asked for the guilt of that to be upon you, Okay, even in, in that case, the crime of the cosmos, the worst possible sin of all time and all history and all space, even that can be taken away if you repent, if you're baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the promise is to you and to your children. But it's not just, I'm not just talking to you, I think Peter's saying these words, this offer of forgiveness and of salvation uh, and uh, sanctification and transformation is to all us who are afar off. Thank you.